All right, if you've got your Bible, uh, you can go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at verses, uh, chapter 21, uh, continuing on from where we were last week, uh, chapter 21, starting in verse 25. All right, so Luke writes, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity, Because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of heaven of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and you know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for an opportunity to open your word. We thank you for your word itself. We thank you that we can come to it and know you, Father, more clearly, that we can see your son more truly, that we can understand our own hearts. Um, God, that we can recognize uh, how we should live in light of the gospel by which we have been saved. Father, we pray as we do each week that um, you would work through your word in Blunt County. God, that as uh, followers of Jesus Christ um, come to your word, uh, that they learn from it, uh, that they are changed by it, that, uh, God, they share it with those in uh, their communities God, they tell others the good news of Jesus Christ, that you would use um, these things to stir revival in our community, that people would be called back to uh, your son, Jesus Christ, that they would be called into his church, and that, um, God, the people would live in in worship and in faithfulness and in love. Uh, God, that as we do that, um, you would do a great work in our community that, that um, justice would prevail and that um, wrongs would be righted, uh, that people would be cared for, that the hurting would be ministered to, um, that those without would find um, 
the blessing and abundance that comes from from a community that is is uh, generous and and shares with one another. Um, God, that you would do all these things, God, not out of a a obligation, God, but because we have hearts that have been changed by the gospel, uh, that we uh, seek to to emulate and to image Jesus Christ in in our daily lives. God, help us to do that in this Christmas season, God, and help us uh, to live those kind of lives that extend past the Christmas season um, and are a an emblem um, uh, of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We thank you. Uh, we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in and and kind of get going because I've got a I got a lot of stuff to to get through and I and I don't want to get too um tied up uh and and keep us here um longer than normal. So we're going to jump right in and just talk about the the obvious beginning of this passage. The thing that we notice um uh that that stands out to us at the beginning is is the simple and straightforward idea that Jesus is coming back. Right. Um, we remember that each week, you know, as as we were doing uh, talking in uh, the, the, the words of institution in our Lord's Supper tonight. What do we say? Uh, we say Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Think about the reality of the fact that we tie in Christ's second coming with his death and resurrection. OK, like this is a central uh, and important piece of, of our belief. We would probably say it is one of the most important pieces that that perhaps maybe the, the the his death and resurrection would would take that preeminent spot but his first coming in in Bethlehem and his second coming at the end of time certainly um are are amongst the most important doctrines that we uh put our faith in and trust in uh, about who Jesus is and so this passage joins dozens of other passages uh maybe maybe hundreds um or at least a hundred passages in the New Testament proclaiming the simple truth that Jesus Christ is going to return all right he has left that he was he ascended into heaven but he is going to return John 14 Jesus himself says I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may also be Hebrews chapter 9 that we just read uh, in our uh, assurance of, of salvation. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but with sin, uh, but to save those who were eagerly awaiting him. Matthew 24, but concerning that day, the day of his coming, no one knows the hour, not even the angels nor the Son, but the Father only. But we are reminded over and over in all four of the Gospels, in the writings of Peter, in Paul, in John, in Jude, in James, and particularly in the Revelation of John. The New Testament is full of Scripture that emphasizes the fact that Jesus one day is going to return. All right? And so it's interesting because you see that all over the New Testament. I mean, really, if you pay attention, you can't go very far without noticing that Jesus Christ is going to return. But the place that our attention is drawn to most uh, primarily in this passage there in verse 27 is actually an Old Testament reference. It is a, it is a, 
one of the few um, uh, or, or more sparse references to the second coming that we see in the Old Testament. And that's from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. And so that idea that we see there of the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory, that's a straight allusion to the book of Daniel where it says, I saw in a night vision. So Daniel has this vision. He says, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Right. So when we hear that passage, that was that was a passage that was referring to the coming of the Messiah and victory. The kind of victory that we assumed the disciples thought was going to be what the first coming was about. All right. And so the, the, the disciples would have known probably that passage from Daniel and, and thought, this is what we're expecting when, when the Messiah shows up. We're expecting him to institute this kingdom of peace and justice that will never have an end. And he does, but not quite in the way that they were thinking. But the fulfillment of that passage is coming. The fulfillment of that passage is going to come in the second coming of Christ, when he sets up his his forever kingdom um, on an, on earth. Now, I don't know about you, but the second coming, the doctrine of the second coming, it, it when I dwell on it, it builds in me sort of a concre- concreteness um, to the Christian faith. It builds in me a an immediacy. To, to the Christian faith. And what I mean by that is, so obviously it has been 2000 years since Jesus ascended. It is, it is easy, um, and it is a danger for us to be drawn in to this sort of, kind of a complacency, but almost like an idea of thinking to ourselves, all right, Christianity, the Christian faith is, is, is a way of life now, but I don't mean that in a good sense. I mean it kind of in a negative sense. It's just something that it's, it's a creed that we live by now, right? And, and, and while we think it's true, it just seems like things keep on going on forever and ever the same way. And it's our job to just keep on trying to live our lives in a way that, that, that lines up with, with the Christian message. Okay. And so. We commit our lives to to live a certain way and believe certain things, and and then we live and we work and we have friends and then we die one day, right? And we just sort of keep on doing this over and over again. But for me, the second coming sort of pulls me out of that for a second. Um, For me, the second coming reminds me that time and life and history aren't just this thing that's going to go on forever. That there is something coming that is going to be an event that sort of puts an end to, to this stage of our existence. All right. I'm reading a little book by, by a guy named, uh, James Smith and he's talking about a bunch of things in the book, but he makes this interesting line in it and it fit perfectly with what we're talking about this week. He says, in Christianity, our teleology is an eschatology. Okay, our teleology is an eschatology. So a teleology is the study of the purpose of something. Okay, so if you're talking about what the teleology of something is, you're talking about what was it, per, what is its purpose? Okay, and eschatology is the study of the end times, right? The events of the end times. And so he makes this point, and I thought, man, that's exactly what we're talking about this week. 
Our teleology, Christianity's teleology, is an eschatology. The purpose of the Christian faith is the coming of the Son of God, right? In the first coming and in the second coming, okay? And so we don't have this view of history that that we see in, say, Marxism, where it just has this idea that, man, history is just going to roll on. It's going to roll on forever, and we keep on adjusting to that. That's not the picture in the Christian faith. The Christian faith is there is a, a moment out there there is an end point where things are going to change dramatically and nothing will ever be the same after that point. And the whole nature of existence in the universe will be completely different after that point. And we are on our way to that point. It's coming. It's closer today than it was yesterday. All right. And so it's easy to just sort of go, man, I'm just in the, I'm in the groove, Right. But the second coming pulls me out of that. And, and I make this joke every time we talk about the second coming, but it's a, it's a goofy line from a goofy movie. And the guy makes the line and he says, is this what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Right? Um, man, you, know, you remember the little what would Jesus do bracelets? We need a different one that's like a W, I'd have to look at it, like I-T-W-U-Y. W-B-D-W-J-C-B bracelet, right? Is this what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? That's a great question to ask ourselves every single moment of every single day, right? Um, when you're yelling at your wife um, or you're cheating on your taxes um, or you're doing whatever, to stop and ask yourself, this is what I want to be doing when Jesus comes back. Is this what, because he's coming, he is coming back, right? And man, the way this passage points out, he is coming back in a way that will be uh, obvious to everybody. And he will come at a particular time. He will come at a time, and this is the next thing that we probably obviously notice from this passage, particularly the beginning of it, is that Jesus says he is going to return. And his return is going to be accompanied by a time of General anxiety and upheaval. Now, again, we're presented with this tension in the scriptures. The end is going to be marked by this upheaval, but just like we said last time or or last week, not all upheavals mean it's the end. Okay. Upheaval is sort of the nature of our fallen world. We're always in upheaval in some way. And yet, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be an upheaval when Christ comes. In fact, the opposite. When Christ comes back, it is going to be in a time of upheaval. Notice the words in those first couple of verses. Distress, perplexity, fainting with fear, forbidding. Okay? Um, there was going to be some kind of, and man, I don't even know the way to talk about it, some kind of existential crisis that is going on in the world at that time. Something's going to be happening and people everywhere are going to be worked up. And it gives all these sort of these, these things in that passage. It's not a localized situation. Like we read last week with the fall of Jerusalem, the language in that passage was very localized. Man, this is across nations. It's encompassing the whole world. And, and we read those passages and they're sort of cryptic about what exactly is, is going to take place there. Um, is it an ecological crisis? Is it a pandemic? Is it a world war? Is there going to be like an asteroid that hits the earth? Like our imaginations could run wild at this point, but something is happening and people are worked up and worried about the world at this point when Christ returns. And so 
let, let me let me take you on just a, a little trip of fantasy real quick, okay? I'm not saying that this is what's going to happen. I'm just using it sort of as an illustration, as a story. So in this passage, he, he makes this one line. It says, there's distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and of the waves. We don't know what that means, okay? What does it mean that the people of the world are worked up and upset and perplexed by the sea and the waves, something that's going on here? Okay, the meaning of that is unclear. But but imagine this scenario. What if we started to have some sort of uh, increased uh, uh, weather phenomenon going on, typhoons and hurricanes and all these crazy things like that? Well, we can imagine that there would be many people in our world who would interpret that as global warming, that we were in the middle of the ecological crisis that was taking place and the world was falling apart because we'd ruined it for all these different reasons. Right. And they would say, and the world is, is breaking because we have, we have done this thing. The church might see those signs and interpret them as saying, no, 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 it's, this isn't an ecological crisis. This is the end of the world that we are at, right? This is, this is the second the coming of Christ is imminent. But here's what would happen. Each side would dismiss the other, right? There would be this sort of general, uneasiness, and yet nobody would really agree on anything. There would be different voices interpreting the signs from different ways. Again, am I saying that that's what's going to happen? Not in the least. But what I am saying is it's a picture for us. Because one of the things that we notice in these passages about the end times is this, this, again, this tension between the idea that you're going to see it coming and also it's going to surprise you. And we go, how can those both be true? It's hard to understand that. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But here's one more thing that we notice in at the end of this passage. And we touched on this last week. The second coming of Christ means the redemption of God's people. All right, verse 28, it says, Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So we have a culture that is fascinated with the end times, whether that is the Tim LaHaye, you know, books, the left behind kind of books or things like that. We, but we're fascinated with concepts of the end times. Uh, me being a movie buff, there are two sort of movie genres that feel like they have directly come out of this fear. And that is one, disaster movies and two, uh, post-apocalyptic movies. All right. And so whether we are talking about a movie about a tidal wave or an asteroid or a superstorm that is going to come and destroy the planet or something like that, or whether we're talking about Mad Max or the road or the book of Eli or something like that, surviving in this post-apocalyptic wasteland, man, we are, our imaginations are tweaked by this idea of the end times, except here's the deal. All those stories are basically in a Christless world. All right. Those are stories that are trying to deal with the concepts of the end of the world in a world devoid of Jesus. That is not the mindset that we see believers are to have in the end. In the midst of the upheaval and the anxiety, the believer responds in a completely different way. How does he, what does he do? He says his head is raised, his back is straight. Okay. He is waiting, anticipating, not with fear and trepidation, but confidence. Hope 
There's an anticipation that God is about to show up and vindicate his people. And so again, it, it points us to this whole goofy tension that we have when it comes to thinking about the end times, man. The end times for the believer is not a day of fear that is coming. It is a day of completion, a day of victory. It is the day that we are waiting for and hoping for. Now, does that mean it's going to be easy in the midst of those things? It is not going to be. So we're going to talk about that in a second too. But um, we don't look with dread to the end. We look with anticipation to it. The end will be our beginning. It will be the promise that we have looked for for 2,000 years. And if the Jews waited in expectation for 2,000 years for the first coming of the Messiah, we should do the same with the second coming of the Messiah. Again, our that idea from a minute ago, our teleology is an eschatology because the purpose of all things is the return of Christ to gather his people to himself. So we see kind of these ideas in that first little section, okay? But then we get some other clues about the nature of this end times thing. Because again, we get all these confusing ideas from culture and movies and media and, and, and everything about the end times. But we get a few clues just for us to know um, in this passage. So for example, we, we learn a little bit about the scope of this event in verse 35. So what does it say in verse 35? For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So just last week, we were talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And all what we noticed is that all of the language um, uh, tended to be focused in a very localized way. So you remember what the warning was? It said, when you see these days coming, you should flee and get out of the city and run to the hills, right? Don't go back to the city. That was the language, okay? That zooms the this, that event in on Jerusalem, right? He wasn't saying, hey, all people in all the world and all cities run out of the city. That wasn't the point of it. He was dealing with Jerusalem particularly. But when we come to this passage, A, he is not doing that. He is using language about the whole earth and all nations and things like that. And moreover, he says, when these things happen, it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth. So when Christ returns, it will be a worldwide event. You don't have to worry about the fact that Jesus is going to show back up in, in, uh, you know, the Middle East or in Africa or in Asia. And we're going to have to see news stories and wonder, Man, is that Jesus? Is he back? Should I fly to Asia? Should I figure out if this is the real Jesus who has come back? We're not going to have to do that. The second coming of Christ is going to affect the world all at once. Everybody on the face of the earth is going to know this in some way. Revelation 1 gives us a picture of that. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. There's that imagery again. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, right? I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how that's possible. I don't know what it's what the, the, the physics of that is. But at once, all people everywhere are going to know that Christ has returned. And again, just as we, uh, last week we were talking about this warning that, that many would come, uh, in, in Jesus' name, uh, we don't have to worry about not knowing if this is the real deal or not. We're gonna know. Okay. The scope of Jesus' second coming is going to be worldwide. But it's not just going to be comprehensive. It is going to be quick. 
right? The second coming of Jesus is going to be quick. And I don't mean like snap quick, but pretty quick. And that's what we come to when we look at verse 32. 32 is a key passage in this, this thing because it's the one that gives everybody a little bit of question mark in their head when they read it. Because what does it say? Jesus says in verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. And you're like, wait a minute. Jesus is saying that all of this stuff is going to take place before this generation is gone. Um, does that mean that Jesus is saying that before the current people who are alive, when he is saying this, before they're dead, he the second coming will have happened? Because if that's the case, he didn't, right? Um, people try to explain this in all kinds of different ways. Some people are like, no, no, what he means by this generation is he talking about the, the Gentile generation that is referred to in verse 24. That he's saying this era of the Gentiles is coming and that that's the generation that will, that will see the second coming of Christ. But I don't think that's right. Um, other people have tried to say, well, he's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so the, the Holy Spirit will come. He will come in the, in the, in the person of the Spirit before this generation is out. But that doesn't seem to line up either, all right? Now, again, there's different kind of ways that people have have come to grips with this passage, but I think here is the best way. When he uses, when he's talking about this generation, he's not talking about this generation as in terms of the generation that exists while he is speaking to us. He's talking about this generation in terms of the generation that these events are taking place, right? Now, this is why that would be significant is because what that means is the events, the upheaval that he prefigured, the coming of Jesus, um, is he's not telling us how soon it will happen. He's telling us how quick it will happen. Because if we think he's talking about his own time, then we say, cool, before this generation is done, Jesus is going to come back. But that didn't happen. But he's not. He's talking about the generation in which these events start to take place. So he's basically saying within a generation, all of these events will take place. These things that I've warned you about, this 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 fear and this upheaval, this is all going to take place. The end times are going to take place within a generation. That's important to us, okay? Because you know what we could do? We could look at this stuff and go, well, maybe the end times have been happening since Jesus left. Maybe it's been a 2,000-year end times that we are just slowly building. And yeah, we're in a time of upheaval. We have been all over the time. That's what he's talking about. I think this passage is saying, no, that's not what I mean. There is going to come a generation, and these things are going to start to take place. And you can count on the fact that before that generation is done, Christ will have returned. Okay, the events of the end times will happen quickly, but he's not telling you how soon they will happen. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, and that, that, that's that's because that's a passage that trips people up a lot of times when they come to this. They go, "Wait a minute, what? How can that can't be right? He, it, that that didn't happen." Okay, he's talking about the quickness, not the soonness of of the second coming. And then finally, in verse thirty three, he gives us another characteristic: the sureness. Of the second coming. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Jesus says, I have told you that these things will occur. I have promised you that these things will occur and they will. And so we should not let his delay 
make us doubtful because that's what we do. We sort of look at our watch and we say, uh, you're about 2,000 years too late, Jesus. Like, what's going on? Are you really coming back? Jesus says, don't worry about any of that. My word is sure. I've told you these things are going to happen, and they're going to happen. So I mentioned uh, the Christmas Carol last week, and our family's kind of love for Christmas Carol. And we were watching a version of it. I, I'm, I've been reading through it again in, in the Christmas season. There's a great scene at the very end, and you probably are familiar with it, where uh, Scrooge is there with the ghost of Christmas future. And he has seen the death of Tiny Tim. And now he has seen his own death. Spoiler, sorry if you've never read it. Um, he's seen his own grave. And, and, and he asks the, the ghost of Christmas future this. He says, are these shadows of things to come? Um, or are they only shadows of things that may come? Right? Are these events set in stone? Or can they be avoided if I change my life? All right? We're not going to get into a discussion about predestination and the sovereignty of God right now. But here's what Jesus is saying about these end times events. They're sure. There's no way of getting around them. These things are going to happen. The earth may pass away, but the things that Jesus has promised will never pass away. These events are going to take place, okay? And so we never have to sit back and look and worry. Well, maybe maybe things are different now. Maybe God's changed his plan on these things. Nope. Jesus isn't dealing with possibilities. He's dealing with absolutes. He's not addressing what could happen one day. He is addressing the surety of what will happen one day. And so we kind of tie all that together, right? Jesus foretells of a quick, assured, complete return in a time of upheaval that will mean the salvation of his people. All right. So again, there's lots of question marks when it comes to the end times, lots of speculation, but those are five things that we can say, now that's sure. Okay. We know that. So then what should we do about that? How should we live? Um, well, in a sense, Jesus says, you should do what you do all the time. And so he gives us this parable of the lesson of the fig tree in verse 29. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is saying that you do this kind of thing all the time. You see the signs and you know that the event is right behind it. You will see the signs of the changing seasons and you will know that the spring or the summer is at hand. You will see the signs of the second coming of Jesus and you will know that he is about to return. At least those who are observant will. That's the key to all of this. Those people will be able to read the signs. The trees sprout, the flowers bud, we know it's spring. He uses another illustration in, in, in one of the Gospels. He says, when the wind blows from the south, same way it works the same way in America. When the wind's coming from the south, what do you know? The next day it's going to be warmer, right? Probably rainier too, because that's what happens. It blows that warm heat, and you know what the weather's going to be in the future. Jesus says, you can read the signs of the weather, but you don't seem to be able to read the signs of the times because they are the same. They work the same way. There will be signs, and they will be recognizable. But again, we get confused because it says, yeah, that people are going to be surprised and they're going to know it's coming. Both of those things are said in the gospel. So which one is it? Well, this passage in verse 34 help us to 
understand the, the balance and tension there. Look what he says in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So what's the key? The key's pretty obvious there, I think. He's saying it will be a surprise to many people. You know who it will be a surprise to? It will be a surprise to the people whose lives are weighed down in dissipation, in drunkenness, in the cares of this world. It will be the people who are paying attention to all the stuff down here and not paying attention to God's word and the things that are going on in the world around us. So it will be a surprise to many. Their lives were distracted. Their lives were diluted by the things of the world. And so there were signs they just weren't paying attention to those signs. But that will not be the case for everybody. Some people will see the signs and recognize them, okay? And guess what? There's a great illustration of this idea in the Christmas story itself. Because we remember when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem. They've come from the east, and they show up at Herod's palace. And what do they say to Herod? We're here to see the king. And he says, what are you talking about? What king are you, what newborn king are you talking about? And they say, well, we followed the king's star and it led us here. And it seems to be the case when we read that passage that Herod and his officials and the people of Jerusalem have no idea what he's talking about. So either they don't know, they haven't noticed the signs or they have ignored the signs Or maybe they didn't associate the signs with what they meant, which was the coming of the Christ. But the signs were there, and the wise men noticed them and followed them. And the people of Jerusalem were oblivious to them in some way. And that will be the case at the end of the world. That will be the case at the second coming of Christ. The watchful, the observant will see signs, and they will be noticeable. The distracted and the drunken, they will overlook those signs. So what do we need to do? Verse 36, stay awake. Be awake at all times. And then what else? Praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So one, wakefulness. Man, we talk about this a lot because it keeps on coming up. Jesus talks a lot about wakefulness about readiness, about watchfulness in our lives. It is so hard not to be lulled into a false sense that everything is just going to keep on going the way it always has. There is a definite, and again, it goes back to what we said at the beginning, there is a definite day-in, day-outness of our lives. We get in 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 the patterns, and we just keep on going through them. We go to work. We go home, we go to sleep, we go to work, we go home, we go to sleep, we go to work, we go home, we go to sleep, and we do that for 70 years, 80 if we are blessed, and then we die. And it seems like sometimes, again, I've I've mentioned before, like looking at my daughters, like I look up and I go, man, they're grown. Like, how did that happen? How did it go so quickly? Well, I know how it went so quickly, because I got up. I went to work, I came home, and went to bed. Then I got up, I went to work, I went home, went to bed. And yet Jesus calls us, he says, there is a wakefulness, there is a watchfulness, there is an awareness, there is a vigilance that we have to keep before our eyes at all times. 
We will wake up one day and it will be too late. The event will be here. Christ will have returned. And so what does he ask us to do in, in, in addition to wakefulness? He says, pray. And what specifically? Pray for strength. Because it will take strength to endure the things that are coming. And the only way we're going to have that strength is if we pray and ask God to give it to us. So I've been trying to make a point as I read just kind of in my daily reading of the places where God calls us to pray for something specifically. Okay. He, we're, we're supposed to take all of our cares to God, right? So you can take anything and that's good and right. And yet there are certain places where God himself says you should pray for this thing. Okay. This is something, there are lots of important things out there, but you should pray for this one thing in particular because you're going to need it. One of those is strength and not just any strength, but the strength to endure the things that will accompany the second coming of Christ. Because here's the deal. He makes that line. He says, pray that you will have the strength to escape all these things. I don't think he's talking about escape like, oh, cool. I didn't have to deal with them. Like it just so happened that I got to skirt off to, you know, this holler in East Tennessee and nobody noticed me. And I just rode all those things out and everything was fine. And then Jesus came back and I got to, everything was fine. I don't think that's what he's saying. Okay. That's how I've been trying to live my life, okay? I've been trying to get over to the hollow, right? And stay, you know, sort of like, I'm going to pull myself away and have this little place. And that's not what he's talking about. It's probably not going to work anyway. He's saying it's going to take strength to endure the difficult years that lead up to the second coming of Christ. We are going to want to cave. There is going to be a time if the Lord tarries and we live to see the second coming, which we may not. We may all die in our beds one day and and go to heaven and and Jesus doesn't come back for a hundred years or a thousand years. But if we are here at the second coming, they are going to be trying times, particularly for the followers of Jesus. And there will be an impulse from all of us to cave, to walk away from the difficulties that are there, right? Man, we are in the midst of a culture that has this whole deconstruction impulse. The idea that Christianity has way too much baggage and I need, I'm going to, I'm going to remove myself from it. That is the impulse of the age. I'm saying it will be the impulse of that age too. When the going gets tough, let's ditch our gear and, and bail. Okay, that seems to be the spirit of the age. It is not the spirit to say we need to pray that God would give us strength to endure the hardships that are going to come. That doesn't seem to be the way we think, but that is exactly what Jesus calls for. He says, stay awake, stay watchful and pray for strength. I'm sure there would be a hundred other things that Jesus could have said at this point. He could have given us all kinds of advice, right? All kinds of biblical important, foundational, solid truths for us to to hold on to. And yet he says basically two things. Stay awake, pray for strength. Because it will take those two things to weather the end times. So what I want to do is, is, I know that's sort of an abrupt ending, 
Um, but I want to go to the Lord in prayer. And I want to do that very thing. Um, maybe in your own head and heart, maybe in your own prayer times, you can, I don't know what you do. If you got like a system, if you got a little prayer book, if you got post-it notes, I don't know what you do, but maybe you add that and you say, as a regular part of my prayer, I'm going to pray for strength when it comes to the times that will accompany the second coming of Christ. God, if I'm alive during that day, God, will you keep me strong? Will you keep me faithful? so that I can endure whatever the world throws at me, whatever difficulties arrive at that time. Um, will you give me strength to endure that? Because you're not going to find that strength on your own. Um, you're not going to get it by being just that solid in and of yourself. It is going to be something that is supernatural, that is that is a function of us being filled with the Spirit of God. All right, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and um, ask him to do that very thing. Father God, your word is is full of tensions. Um, we we talked about this tension of, of the suddenness of your coming and yet the preparedness uh, for your coming. God, we see um, we see another tension here that we are to um, hopefully, uh, joyously, excitedly um, await your coming. We are supposed to be um, standing tall with our heads up, looking to your second coming. And yet we know that there will be difficult things that will be taking place during that time. And we, we don't know the nature of those things. Will it be persecution? Probably. Will it be deprivation? Probably. Will there be um, forces aligned against us? Will, will, be, will there be things going on in the, the nat- natural realm of the world um, that are making life more difficult? Probably all of these things will be the case, God, and it will be in our own sinful hearts and our own um, weakness and our own frailty. God, there will be a, a pull and an impulse to walk away, God, to abandon um, the things that we have been called to, the things that we have staked our life on and to recede into the world. And so, Father, we pray for strength. God, I pray for you to give strength to everyone sitting in this room, if we are alive at that time, if we are present at the second coming, God, that you would give us strength to remain faithful, to persevere, to endure through any hardship that would come to us, God, so that we could attain the prize of of standing and being prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that everything that we do, that our, our watchfulness and wakefulness would, would serve that purpose, that it would prepare our hearts for things that could be the case. God, we don't want, uh, the, 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 the hardship. God, we are, we, we are not, um, we don't want martyrdom. We don't want persecution. We don't want difficulty. We don't want any of those things. 
And yet you promise that those things are going to be a part of the, of, of the life of the follower of Jesus Christ, particularly at the end times. So God, give us the strength to be prepared. Give us the watchfulness to be prepared for it. God, help us to remain faithful and in the midst of all those things to continue to uh, follow you, to love, to serve, um, and to bear witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. We ask these things, we pray these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. We stand and sing the closing song. Amen.
Um, good to see you. Glad you're here tonight. Um, a reminder, you know, you may have noticed as the plate was being passed around, uh, those little red envelopes. So uh, all those red envelopes are offerings to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missions. Um, you can find one of those envelopes out here. And so the red envelope's not official. It's just a way that we're sort of um, visualizing the, the, the giving in that area and keeping it separate from our regular giving. But every single dollar of that goes directly to missionaries, international missionaries on the field. So it doesn't go to administrative costs. It doesn't go to marketing. It doesn't go to any of those things. Every single cent that is raised in the Lottie Moon offering goes directly to missionaries on the field. So these are... Um, I, we don't have, uh, I'm, I'm going to see if I can get some of the videos posted um, that, that that we have watched at Mother Church because there are these great, just little short stories about the work that missionaries are doing all over the world among uh, people all over the world. And one of the most encouraging things to me is to watch these stories and go, you know what? Uh, Christianity isn't like a white people religion from the South, right? Uh, man, it is so easy for us to feel that way sometimes. Like, ah, you know, Southern Americans, that's, we believe in Christianity, Right. To, to watch, you know, Asian believers and African believers and and people all over the world proclaiming the same gospel that we believe in is encouraging to me. Right. Um, it is. It's, it's cool to see that and to know that God is working in any number of ways all around the world. And so those gifts that we give um, are going to facilitate that the spread of the gospel all over the world. So hope you'll think about that. And in, 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 uh, if, if you've got uh, giving that you do at, at Christmas season, I hope you'll think of, of Lottie Moon offering um, and, and you can grab an envelope for that uh, out here on the welcome table. So Wednesday night, 545. Choir singers come, okay? Anybody who wants to participate. We've got all the readers we need, but we would love for you to come and be a part of the choir. Um, meet downtown. You probably want to park, probably come in on the lower parking uh, level there next to Blue Ticks and then park there in one of those middle levels and then walk up to the Christmas tree. That'd probably be easiest instead of trying to find a spot there at Blue Tick or whatever. Um, and and we'll sing together and, and witness to uh, Jesus Christ to our community. So thanks. Good to see you. Here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you, give you peace. See you next week.